Thanks for downloading this show from PC One. Before we get rolling, here's a word from one of the folks who helped bring you this podcast. Hey, it's Adam Carolla. The greatest time of the year is back. College basketball. That's right. March Madness, March Mania, and March Money. Join in on everyone's favorite game, the Bracket Challenge Contest at betonline.ag. Sign up for a free account, receive your 50% welcome bonus, and make your picks. All the early lines for all the games are now available, so don't miss out on any of the action for the next three weeks at betonline.ag, the exclusive partner at Podcast One Sportsnet. The Forbes interview is brought to you by WordPress.com. WordPress powers 27% of all websites, including Forbes blog posts. Get 15% off of your new website today at WordPress.com slash Forbes. That's WordPress.com slash Forbes. This is the Forbes interview on Podcast One. And I'm your host, Steve Bertoni. On this show, I'll do deep dive interviews with billionaires, entrepreneurs, and influencers. These are the faces you see on the cover of Forbes. And if they aren't in the cover, they easily could be. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Today, we have Peter Buffett, who has spent the last few decades as a musician, a composer, and a philanthropist who focuses on many things, including civil rights, women's rights, fair economies. And now, uh, his two worlds of music and philanthropy have collided. He has a new album out called Songs in the Current. Peter, um, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So let's start by talking about your new your new album. What uh, what inspired this, and when did you get to work on it? Well, it's been uh, sort of a long time coming. I was pulling out my old turntable and my old records, and I listened to the song Woodstock and uh, realized, you know, classic from the late 60s, early 70s, and realized it was my life. And I was sort of, you know, really, not even sort of, I was blown away by the similarities. I now live near Woodstock. Uh, there seems to be a uh, echo of the 60s happening right now. Uh, lots of social change seems to be uh, afoot, and that's exciting. And so I thought I'd take a crack at remaking it. Uh, and I did, and I was happy with the result, put a video together, and then as I, as that built momentum, the zeitgeist built momentum too in terms of the, <laughs> the meaning of the song. And uh, so my wife actually suggested I look back over the, the last five years or so of my songwriting because it seemed to, again, be kind of taking on more and more of uh, social commentary and um, mostly that, uh, comments and, and reflections on our growing situation around uh, inequality and consumer culture and these different things. And so I re-recorded some songs, uh, remixed them, re-sang them, uh, some of them, and decided to put them out as a collection that all kind of rallied around this idea of reflecting on our situation so far uh, ours meaning the cultural situation we seem to find ourselves in and uh, putting it out as a more determined effort to uh, exercise my voice as an artist that, as you said, kind of uh, really uh, combines and connects my experiences as uh, a philanthropist. And you mentioned that the song Woodstock kind of got this started and kind of kicked off this this new this new idea. Was there one or two lines that really kind of spoke to you with about the uh, about connecting the '60s to now? Yeah, it. I think if I had to choose, it would be in the 
the middle verse in particular around, you know, maybe it's the time of year and maybe it's the time of man. Uh, and I don't know who I am, but life is for learning and I feel like a cause. You know, these lines to me really resonated in that, uh, you know, I was just a kid in Omaha <laughs> growing up uh, and I was just a, a lucky musician who was able to turn his composition skills into a livelihood of film and television and commercials. But then I suddenly became uh, responsible, uh, along with my wife, Jennifer, of, you know, billions of dollars to give away. Uh, and I also, I kind of joke about this, but I suddenly became Warren Buffett's son, <laughs> you know, um, that didn't really matter so much for most of my life. And now I'm, I'm, I have a, a curious platform that my father has, has magnified and has also allowed in the sense of the philanthropy. So I feel like I have gone from, you know, just another person on the planet to somebody that must speak, you know, that, that if I don't, I'm missing an opportunity and a responsibility uh, now that I'm, you know, seeing the things I'm seeing. And you mentioned you went from, you know, a musician to suddenly responsible for billions of dollars to give away. When did that transformation take place? Well, quite specifically, uh, I think it was June 26, 2006. Uh, okay. I might be off on the day exactly, but that's when my dad made his big announcement to the New York Public Library that he was going to give all of his money away, essentially. And, um, of course, the bulk of it went to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, but myself, uh -huh. my siblings, and strangely, my, my ex-brother-in-law, <laughs> uh, who runs my mother's foundation, we all also were charged with quite an, uh, an enormous amount of money to give away. And so that date was the date, and then he's since uh, doubled it, and the stock has since also risen quite a lot. So, you know, it's now what started as a billion-dollar gift has now become over a $3 billion gift. So it's... it's those, are the those are the best kind of gifts. It's kind of like uh, when you get money for graduation and suddenly it, it triples in yeah. 10 years. Yeah, exactly. And and at the same time, it could be easy to give money away if you just wanted to be popular <laughs> because, you know, I could give to all sorts of things and be at all sorts of parties and have my name on all sorts of things. But it's much harder to give it away in a you know, what we would think of as kind of a systemic way, you know, where you really go upstream to what's causing the issues and say, how can we, you know, dismantle or disrupt or dissolve current structures that have created these problems in the first place? And that's that's a much heavier lift. And you, you mentioned this all kind of came into fruition in 2006. How did you first find out about it? Did uh, did did your dad kind of ring you on the phone and said, "Hey, Peter, I got uh, some interesting news for you"? Or did he was it a personal sit down, or did you know this was going to come down the line? Just well, not sure when. Yeah, it, it's um, it's mostly the pick up the phone type thing. So we, my parents did. First of all, my dad knew from an early age that he was going to make a lot of money because he just knew he was wired for the particular time and place he was born. Mm -hmm. uh, and, the, and the systems and structures in place that he was going to be really wealthy. And so he was concerned early on how that was going to affect 
us as his children and also what he wanted to do with it uh, as it, uh, you know, mostly when he passed away, but even before. Uh-huh. That. And these are good problems to have. These are good problems to have. And and lucky me that he wanted to be really thoughtful about how to solve them. You know, I am personally quite thankful that I didn't suddenly come upon millions of dollars personally. That 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 would have been disastrous, I think, certainly at an early age. And so we got we meaning my siblings and I got small amounts of money to give away in the mid 90s. And I'm talking really small in terms of, you know, relative amounts, like $100,000 or something to just learn about philanthropy and the community we were interested in, that sort of thing. That increased to about $10 million uh, in 2000. Uh, But again, at the 5% rule, that's a half a million dollars a year. A lot of money, but not overwhelming in terms of infrastructure and the thinking around what to do. So in 2006, we basically, my sister called me and said, are you near a fax machine? Which gives you insight into my father's technological problem. (laughs) Um, And uh, we got a a fax in, I think, March of that year, uh, June being the date, right? So we had a little bit of a head start, but it, it was a big surprise. Suddenly you go from, like you said, giving out $500,000 a year to suddenly having $1 billion at your disposal. I mean, that's a huge responsibility and a huge amount of – it's almost like you must be paralyzed by all the opportunities because there's so many um, things that this could go to. And I'm sure once the news is out, I'm – I'm sure your uh, your your email melts because everyone in the world's asking for a handout. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, so yeah. how do you how do you pick a cause that you're passionate about, and then how do you build a system to deploy that? That's really a great question. And and first of all, you're right. Once you have a billion dollar foundation, you're better looking, you're funnier, you're you know all these <laughs> things happen. Um, but uh, what we did first is. Um, go away with a trusted friend of ours and sit down and really think about what was important to us and uh, what was our story running inside of us? What did we uh, experience even as kids, you know, growing up? What were things that deeply resonated? And and I was fortunate that I grew up in a civil rights household. My parents were, even in Omaha, uh, deeply connected and moved and inspired to act uh, by the 60s and what was going on. And so I had that as sort of a soup I grew up in. And then in my professional career as a musician, contributing to the film Dances with Wolves, I got deeper and deeper into the story of American Indian culture, the founding of the country, um, what you know, oppression and um, exclusion in terms of decision-making, um, extraction, and just plain genocide on a certain level, you know, h- how that created the country that we now say is so exceptional, right? So I saw this real disconnect uh, between our founding and our values, essentially. And so that was living in me in multiple ways. And so when we went off and really dug in to our feelings about all this and experiences and things, it was clear that we wanted to try our best to address the systemic nature of oppression and uh, domination and exploitation. And in that process, it was clear to us that sort of the first stop was, and and I, I 
hesitate to always say it this way because it sounds like it's men versus women or, Mm -hmm. you know, only men are a certain way and women are a certain way. But the truth is men have been running the show. It has been an oppressive system. And the way to balance out the system would be first to start with girls and women and Mm -hmm. and giving them agency over their own lives and uh, decision making power, uh, not only in their own lives, but the lives of the system's around them. So girls and women uh, were the first stop for us, for sure. And then we expanded from there. And you mentioned your first issue was obviously empowering women, women's equality, women's rights. This has been, you know, obviously an important, vital cause that's been going on forever. But I feel like in the last two years, this has really percolated to the surface, whether it's, you know, women on boards, women CEOs, women pay, the whole Silicon Valley issue. And then, of course, it's kind of come to a head now with Trump and the Women's March. What do you, what's your take on this right now? And what, what do you see as a scene? Um, well, first, it's about time. It's very exciting to see. It's something that, you know, again, 10 years ago, we started on, on this journey of, of really supporting girls and women in so many different ways. And so it's actually very exciting in some ways to see this rising up uh, in our culture in the way it has. It's, of course, frustrating that it has to once again. Uh, and, you know, and the fact that I'm a man talking about it <laughs> and all, yeah. the, all those things. Um, but it is so necessary to take these steps. And specifically, you know, um, your listeners might get a kick out of the fact that I just finished or recently finished a book uh, called Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner? <laughs> and um, and it speaks to, you know, how out of balance what we measure uh, in our economy is with what we what's necessary. You know, the, mm-hmm. the caring, the nurturing, the support, the all the things that allow this economy to run or certainly a lot of the things are not counted uh, as, you know, GDP, uh, which is absurd. Uh, you know, the answer to who cooked his dinner was his mother <laughs> and, and she cooked his dinner until she died. And, and, and yet there he was writing this book, not counting her contribution to his ability to write the book. And, yeah. you know, so we have yeah, behind every, behind every great man as the, the phrase goes, right? Right, exactly. And, and of course, behind everyone is a mother that gave birth <laughs> to yep. them. And, you know, and so, yeah, it's, it's wonderful to see the Women's March was extraordinary. And at the same time, how could we possibly put someone in office that is so clearly uh, degrading, you know, to women and, and puts them in a, a position in his brain that has no place in any century, but certainly this one. Yeah, I'm not sure if Melania cooks Donald's dinner every night. Right, exactly. And I'm not sure he really knows or cares as long as it's there and ready, which is, you know, just, <laughs> just egregious. <laughs> so qu- going back, going back, I mean, you said you spent the last decade supporting women's equality and rights. How do you do that? How do you go about that? How is the, the money best served for action and results? You know, our culture is very binary, very much like, let's find the answer. Let's reduce it to a single issue if we can. Mm-hmm. And certainly I'm not suggesting you're doing this, but I think that it it is a, a problem that we have to overcome in the sense that it's an ecosystem of issues and they can't all be quantified. One of my pet peeves is the you know reductionism and quantification of everything because we just can't do it when we get into philanthropy. Uh, there are things that take generations to change, and there are things that we will never 
be able to put a number on. And mm. um, that being said, you know, we, we try and measure it where we can so we can prove to other people that it works. And it's everything from, you know, paid sick day legislation and uh, issues around child care and domestic workers' rights and service workers in general to um, the horrific behaviors around trafficking, mm -hmm. getting women into prostitution, you know, all the things around selling and commodifying females in whatever form it is that is unjust or unfair. This is a uh, issue that is really ultimately a consciousness issue. You know, it's it's we hold women in a, 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 a position that doesn't allow them to, like I said before, have agency over not only their own lives, but the structures and systems that they're put into. And talking about these systems, this might, this might sound simple, but what can every normal, normal person do in the course of their day, in the course of their responsibilities of working and supporting you know, their loved ones and family and friends? What can we do to help this cause push forward? You know, awareness is, is always the first step. <laughs> and in that awareness, I'm fascinated by this fact that uh, I believe can be, well, it has been scientifically proven, that, that um, there is a half second between reality and our experiencing of it. Uh, so in other words, you're being inundated with billions of bits of information constantly. We reject most of them. Uh, because we can name them and understand them or tell stories about why they exist the way they do. And so we have this half-second delay uh, that gives us time to make meaning of the world around us. So I'm a big fan of suggesting we hack the half-second <laughs> and <Okay>. get <laughs> in there and be aware of the stories we tell ourselves around why we behave the way we do and and the, why the structures are okay. And that always starts, of course, with your own story, because that's what's telling you the story about everything else. And and so if we can get in there and think about, and a lot of this is the self-reflection on, you know, it, this is going to sound like, you know, therapy 101 or something, but mm -hmm. what did you grow up inside of? What is telling you what relationship is about? You know, we all had flawed uh, lessons in terms of relationship and and what's important to us and how we treat other people and all these various things. And so to get in there and really examine the stories we believe and why we believe them and very specifically around our relationships uh, to other people in general and to the opposite sex in particular. And obviously for men and women, but, you know, for men, that's a very, it's not just, you know, oh, you know, I'll do the dishes tomorrow so you don't have to kind of thing. It's, it's a deep deconstruction of why we hold the stories we hold around our relationships hmm. uh, and especially to women. And jumping from philanthropy to music for a second here and talking about origin stories, when did you first really get into music? And was it always something you grew up with or something you knew you wanted to do? Well, it's certainly something I grew up inside of. My uh, mother played piano and sang, and my father uh, somewhat famously plays the ukulele and sings. And Has, that, has it always been the case? Has your dad always played ukulele? Yeah, always been the case. Yeah, and <laughs> So there was music around the house, 
you know, just kind of randomly, but but kind of thoroughly. I mean, that somebody was always whistling or singing or doing something. And my mother says I sang before I talked, which is so sweet. <laughs> she says I sang Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star before I actually spoke a word. And so it was always a part of me. My mother encouraged it. I took piano lessons when I was a kid, mm -hmm. but at the same time, never thought I'd be a professional musician. I just thought it was something that was fun to do. I heard songs in my head. I'd make up songs all the time. Um, this followed me through high school. And, uh, and yet I went off to college, not knowing what I was going to be when I grew up. And, um, it wasn't until, about a year and a half in, I'd taken everything that ended in 101 or ology at college, yep. <laughs> and no joke, and um, and loved it, enjoyed learning, and but then it was this realization. It's kind of like in the Wizard of Oz; it was there all along, you know. And I just realized this is what I want to figure out how to do. And I was fortunate enough to have inherited some. Well, it was a farm originally that my grandfather left all of us uh, grandchildren. Mm -hmm. My dad sold it. Uh, you know, he couldn't stand the misallocation of capital, so he sold yes, it sure. <laughs> and invested it. And so I had $90,000 worth of Berkshire Hathaway stock when I was 19, uh, which is about a quarter of a million dollars a day. So, you know, it's that was a lot yeah, of substantial. And um, at the same time, it, being 19, you could spend that pretty fast if you... Yep. And luckily I didn't. Um, and I, I basically bought time. I was able to pay my rent, buy a little bit of equipment and started on my career. And I was fortunate enough to succeed. Can't imagine what that stock would be worth right now. Uh, well, <laughs> it was 600 shares. So we're talking, uh, what, we're in the $200 million range now somewhere. It's it's up to $250,000 a share wow. or something. And that is sort of the classic you know, thing I say, your money or your life. You know, yep. I I was able to turn that money into a livelihood that I I wouldn't have asked for anything different. So I'm sort of a classic story of, of I'd much rather have the life I lived than just sit on a pile of money <laughs> and wonder if I could do anything. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. As the Earth's temperature continues to rise and Washington idly stands by, it's becoming easier to feel discouraged about climate change. But Michael Bloomberg and Carl Pope are optimistic. In their new book, Climate of Hope, they're turning the conversation about climate change on its head, from partisan to pragmatic, from costs to benefits, from fear to hope. Bloomberg is an entrepreneur and former mayor of New York, and Pope, a lifelong environmental leader. Despite different perspectives, They've reached similar conclusions about climate action, offering practical solutions to produce concrete benefits. Bloomberg and Pope explain how citizens, businesses, and cities have the power to win the battle against climate change, generating healthier and stronger communities. Climate of Hope creates a roadmap to tackle climate change, leaving readers with practical steps on what they can do in their own cities to contribute to the progress. You can learn more and order Climate of Hope at climateofhope.com. This is Norman Lear with my great sidekick, 
Paul Hip. Good to be here with you, Norman, on all of the above. That's the name of my podcast, all of the above. Yeah. We have had guests you cannot believe. Yeah. Guests. Julie Dewey Dreyfus, amazing. Yes. And America Ferrara. Jared Carmichael. Yes. Oh, Amy Poehler. How did we overlook? We didn't overlook Amy Poehler. I was saving her for last. And Charles Barkley, I was saving him for first, actually, because I didn't declare up first. I get to hang out with this guy. And this is your chance to hang out with Norman Lear a little bit here and some of these great guests. God, I wish I was you hanging out with Norman Lear. Yeah. <laughs> Son of a gun. See? That must be exciting. It's the yeah. best. He's, I'm telling you. Don't miss All of the Above with Norman Lear. The first episode's available Monday, May 1st on the Podcast One app, Apple Podcasts, or PodcastOne.com. Hey, it's Adam Carolla. The greatest time of the year is back. College basketball. That's right. March Madness, March Mania, and March Money. Join in on everyone's favorite game, the Bracket Challenge Contest at betonline.ag. Sign up for a free account, receive your 50% welcome bonus, and make your picks. All the early lines for all the games are now available, so don't miss out on any of the action for the next three weeks at betonline.ag, the exclusive partner at Podcast One Sportsnet. Growing up, what music were you into? I mean, you were a little young for the, the real 60s, I guess. What were you listening to in high school and college? Luckily, uh, I had an older sister, still do have an older sister, um, who pulled, and my mom actually, brought mm-hmm. all the music home. So in the 60s, when I was, I mean, I w- watched the Beatles on Ed Sullivan when I was yep. five, fully steeped in pop culture all through the 60s, my, my sister brought home you know the the rock and pop and my mom brought home the soul and jazz so she'd bring home aretha franklin and the temptations and my sister would bring home the kinks and you know all that kind of stuff and so i was i was in it and then by the time i got into high school it was you know there was sort of the singer songwriter phase and also the progressive rock phase so uh-huh. i could go everywhere from cat stevens to yes you know in terms of the kinds of things i like was warren a yes fan uh no <laughs> he was not <laughs> he was still listening to glenn miller um and and still does today so yeah. <laughs> that hasn't changed but but you know it was such a great time for music did you major in music at stanford I did not. No, I literally I went there and I took sociology, psychology, uh, astronomy. I mean, I took every I, almost every one one class you could imagine. Um, and in fact, I took one music class. But the truth is, I grew up feeling the music. And I literally remember coming back from my grandparents' house. They lived two blocks away. And so I'd walk down there all the time. And then mm-hmm. I was probably seven or eight and saying to my mom, you know, I hear these songs in my head and I'd run to the piano and try and figure them out. So my musical career has always been feeling first and theory a, a very distant second. I want to talk for a second about growing up Buffett. I heard from my colleague, Carrie Dolan, that you didn't realize you guys were a little wealthy and until a Forbes article came out back in the day? Yeah, I, that's really true. I mean, we had very small indications at, in childhood. There was one article in the Omaha World Herald, mm-hmm. maybe, I don't know, when I was 10 or 12 or something that said something about my dad and, and his wealth. But it didn't register because we didn't see it. You know, it's, it, it would be like, you know, reading about your father having all this money, but then looking around and going... I don't, you know, <laughs> that seem to make any difference around here, not in a bad way, but just in a, you know, very normal way. I went to public school and, you know, we just lived in the neighborhood my dad still lives in. And yeah. so it wasn't until 
probably I don't know when the first Forbes list came out in the 80s. Yeah, I think it was early early 80s, I think. Yeah, early 80s was when it really hit home. And I remember my mother and I saying, you know, it's so funny because now people will think we're different than we are just because, you know, Warren's on this list. And so, yeah, that was the that was a surprise. What was back in the day? What was a Buffett splurge? Uh, let's see a Buffett's. Well, you know, my dad's biggest by far splurge was in the early seventies. And, and again, this would be an indicator that we had money, but it just didn't feel that way. But Uh my dad, we remodeled our house in Omaha. The kitchen was updated and the garage was turned into a family room and we got a pool table, which was a big deal. (laughs) But Behind the new garage, you couldn't tell it was there. Totally hidden from view was a racquetball court. Wow. And so we had a racquetball court <laughs> at our house. And that's that's kind of like having a swimming pool in Omaha. You know, it's one of these things that people just don't have. And, uh, and we didn't have a swimming pool, but we did have this racquetball court. And that was by far the most extravagant thing my dad ever did. Did you guys play a lot? My brother did. And my dad did, of course. I played a little bit, but my brother really did. What advice would you give to people who are raising their children? Uh, I mean, not even of a, not even extreme wealth, but just you know, general general uh, affluence to make them come out quote unquote normal and normal. empathetic and appreciative. Right, exactly. And you know, as you would expect, first and foremost, it's through behavior. I mean, that's true for all parenting. You can tell your kids all sorts of things, but if you're doing something different, it's not going to stick. And so you have to really, you know, and that gets into why are you wealthy in the first place? Because if you're chasing money for self-worth, I can almost guarantee you, you're going to screw your kids up. If you're building a business and you're just good at something and it happens to make a lot of money, but that's not why you're doing it, your kids are probably going to be okay. And and so it really comes from the the psychology behind why the money is there. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I mean that's just the bottom line because if you're buying something extravagant and you're as excited about it as your kids might be because it's so new and and different that might be okay if you're doing it to say look at who I am because I can buy this again it's going to trickle down yeah. to your kids so it's it's really all in why the money's showing up and what your motivation is we're going to take a quick break We'll be right back. Here at the Forbes interview, we know that creating great things sometimes comes down to having the right support system. That's why we're excited to have WordPress.com as a sponsor. They've been supporting us behind the scenes for a while as home to Forbes blog posts. We use WordPress.com all the time. And whether you're looking to create a personal blog, a business site, or both, you'll make a big impact when you build your website on WordPress.com. Even if you don't have experience building a website, don't worry about it. WordPress can guide you through the process. They have hundreds of themes to get you started. You'll get built-in search engine optimization and social sharing. When you build your website on WordPress.com, you'll get support 24-7. Come see why 27% of all websites run on WordPress. Get started today with 15% off any new plan purchase. Go to WordPress.com slash Forbes to create your website and find the membership plan that's right for you. That's WordPress.com slash Forbes for 15% off a brand new website. WordPress.com slash Forbes. And you mentioned, you know, you didn't realize about your dad's success financially um, until the Forbes list came out. And I'm sure even back then he was known 
to you know Wall Street nerds and business people. But you know now your father is a kind of a cultural pop culture touchstone. Right. Um, when did that that transformation occur? That really happened um, about what would it be about t- ten or twelve years ago in that uh-huh. range because. I think what happened is there were, whether it was books coming out or other people kind of putting my dad's story uh, on the record in a way. And my dad quite clearly wanted it to be his voice that was on the record Mm -hmm. and not have someone else shape his narrative. And so that's when he started to become more public. Um, and I know that for a fact. He, I mean, he has said that. It's like, you know what? I want to be the one that is defining who I am, essentially. Yes. And, mm-hmm. and since it started to happen, you know, before it could get out of control, he started showing up on TV more and in print more and all those things. And how was that for you? Like you said, you, you went out and you, you, know, you grew up lucky to have, you know, a great family and having some money that you could, you know, small amount of money to do what you wanted. Um, but then suddenly you became, you know, did you become Warren's son at a kind of a, a midlife kind of age? Yeah. Um, and thank God it was a midlife age, frankly, <laughs> you know, because I think that would have really who knows what that would have done. But I I don't hold great promise for my life if it was, you know, if I was Warren Buffett's son at 22 or something. It was interesting to suddenly like I was kind of joking before it suddenly become Warren Buffett's son. And I joke to my friends, I have this silent salutation that I make when I meet someone for the first time. And that is I honor your projections <laughs> because <laughs> everyone has a projection now of who I am, who I'm not, what I must be like, what my childhood was like, you know, all these different things. And, you know, I don't get too caught up in that, but it can be a sticking point in meeting some people sometimes. You know, I won't call it a shadow because yeah. he, he doesn't he doesn't cast it. It's sort of the culture that casts it. And we have to kind of figure out how to maneuver uh, around with that as just part of the story. And besides being a musician and a philanthropist, you're also a best-selling author. And you wrote about, your book is about finding purpose. And I, re- I read the introduction, as journalists do, before the interview. Right. And you had some great lines about, you know, not letting the um, silver spoon in the mouth become a silver dagger in the back. Right. And, um, you know, making the best out of a good situation. What advice do you have for people, what, you know, no matter who they are or who their families are, about kind of finding out what they want to do and doing what they love, but being able to, you know, survive doing that or make a living, I should say? Yeah, yeah. And, and it, it is tricky territory because my dad, when I was a kid, even, you know, was saying, find something you love if you're lucky enough to find it, you know, because not everybody does not, you know, everyone knows. Yeah. Not everybody knows they may find it late in life. So much of it gets back to my feeling around stripping away the stories you believe and why you believe them, you know, and really looking at, at getting in touch with your feelings, essentially, like what makes me feel good? What do I enjoy doing? Because we are programmed at such early ages in all sorts of ways, but often, and, you know, especially guys, you know, to ignore some feelings that might be informing you of what you really want to do. So we don't live in a culture that, that supports really finding yourself in, in a lot of ways. And, and so first of all, it's a challenge. And, you know, this guy 
said something to me when I was probably about 18 or 19. I've never forgotten. It's pay attention or pay with tension. (laughs) (laughs) That's like that. Man, that's, those are words to live by. And that there are so many ways to take that. But if you, if you can't hear yourself and honestly, that's why my dad stayed in Omaha and didn't go to wall street. He wanted to be able to hear himself and, and really understand his motivation and direction and not get caught up in you know everybody else's you know the school of fish essentially all going in one direction and um so there's no easy answer my book was written to help and it seems to be good guidance for people which is great and and that book was really written because people were asking me the question you asked you know how do you how are you normal (laughs) basically (laughs) inside this structure and of course the book isn't just about my story it's other people's as well so um it just is I guess a plug for the book, but it, yeah, it helps. it's always good. <laughs> and in terms of, you know, you said your dad wanted to hear himself and hear his voice these days, um, obviously probably because of pop culture and because of journalists like, like us, everyone wants to hear your dad's voice in terms of whether it's, you know, giving a million dollars to charity to have lunch with Warren or right. every time he speaks, it becomes, you know, headlines on CNBC and obviously his writings and especially with his recent, uh, his annual letters are, you know, they're read by millions. Growing up, was he giving like key advice all the time, or was he just kind of dad? Or did it? Looking back on it now, how do you how do you feel? What did you what like sticks with you with 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 uh, your dad and kind of life advice or business advice? Well, the first and foremost, it and and I actually have said this before, and it's true in our own family. It was his actions and my mother's actions, but it was really, you know, he didn't say uh, find something you love. He was doing it right. And he would come home from the office every day at the same time. And we'd all have dinner at the table together. And I saw a guy that loved what he did, you know, and wasn't mad at the boss, you know, wasn't coming home wanting to drink the day away or something, you know, I mean, there, so, so I saw the behavior that, that if I could emulate that, uh, while I wasn't consciously thinking that, you know, it was soaking in to say, wow, this, this seems right. And then he would give advice in terms of, um, mostly, you know, just around authenticity and, Mm. and understanding who you are, but they weren't, you know, it, it wasn't heavy handed at all. I can't even think of a literal thing, but there were those kinds of things around, um, honesty. He has that famous line around, you know, make sure the decisions you make could be read on the front page of the paper by yeah. friends and you know that kind of thing. So there were those little bits and pieces of things, but it was mostly through behavior. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. While it's becoming easier to feel discouraged about climate change, Michael Bloomberg and Carl Pope are optimistic. In their new book, Climate of Hope, they're creating a roadmap on how we can tackle climate change now. Learn more and order Climate of Hope at climateofhope.com. And you mentioned he came home every day for dinner. I mean, I feel like these days in business is such a pride and almost a badge of honor of being a workaholic. And right. I, I, and I'm not saying your dad didn't, he obviously works very hard, but did he have a great kind of, growing up, did he have a great balance, as they say now? Yeah, you know, it's funny because people really can't believe that there we were all at the dinner table, no television on, none of that stuff. You know, we were there, but I would, I'm not so sure he had a balance because um, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of football throwing in the backyard, 
but there was a consistency that was extraordinary. And, and as I get older and hear other people's stories of their childhood, I realized the consistency was gold, you know? And so he would come home at five 30 We'd hear him, you know, yell out from the back hall as he came out of the garage. We'd have dinner. It probably what would, he, what would he yell out? Just I'm home. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, so you'd have the the, the announcement, and then um, and then we'd have dinner at six or six thirty. Like I said, you know, all around the table, no television, obviously no cell phones or any of that stuff. Um, and then he would go uh, usually to the living room where he'd read the paper. And he was there, you know, you could go bug him, but you probably didn't, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then he'd be up, he had a little office off uh, my parents' bedroom and he'd be up there talking to Charlie Munger, yep. going through the, you know, it's like foot thick Moody's books or whatever they were. And, um, and so it, it, it wasn't, and he'd do it pretty much six days a week, which he still does, you know, half days on Saturdays. Um, so he was in a sense always working, but doing it in a manner that, that felt connected to the home and certainly not distracted. I mean, I could literally pick up the phone right now, dial his number and he'd pick it up. You know, I mean, he's, he's surprisingly accessible all the time. Yeah. And, And how do you work? How do you write your, uh, how do you write music and compose? Well, that is most classically, you know, after hours. So, uh, you know, I'll go about my day and whatever that might be. And certainly now it's it's in the philanthropic world. And, and I'm talking about composing for myself. Then I'll go into the studio at night and just immerse myself in, you know, trying to, to, to have a song find me or me find a song. And that's um, and but in the commercial days, uh, in the 90s and, and into the end of the 80s all that through the 80s um it was much more of a day job where the client would show up at 10 o'clock in the morning and with a 30 second commercial and i'd have to perform <laughs> what was your favorite commercial that you uh, you created or produced or what's what's one we everyone might know well the the interesting thing and kind of lucky for me is i lived in san francisco in the the strongest times of my commercial work and then i moved to milwaukee in the 90s and kept doing it there too but the san francisco was a secondary market all the agencies were there mccann erickson and and you know all of them um but they weren't the major chicago or new york agencies right so i was doing california milk advisory board i was doing you know all these ads that weren't rarely, I mean, I can't think of a national ad I did, but I did a lot of regional ads uh, that were still pretty big. And the milk spots were a lot of fun. They were the first ones I got that put me on the map, sort of, uh, locally or regionally. Um, And then they also, I like any music that combines, um, you know, sound effects or found sounds or different Mm -hmm. kinds of things. And the milk commercials did that. So that was a lot of fun. And what are you listening to right now? Yeah, um, the he's now got a new album out, but the the previous one, James Blake, uh, if you're familiar with him or mm-hmm. listeners might be, he is amazing, I think. Um, and I also love this band Tame Impala, <laughs> that's sort of an alternate rock band. Uh, the Weepies, which is sort of a folk duo, you know. So it's kind of all over, but 
Yeah, my 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 friend and engineer Kieran right now, who's a musician, he's, he's nodding his head in approval for most of these. So that's that's a good sign. All right, great. <laughs> here <laughs> and real quick, um, I, I appreciate all the time here. So obviously, we have you've been working on your philanthropy, your philanthropic causes for over ten years, or well, more than ten years, but real, you know, real yeah. hardcore for ten years. Yeah. This new administration and the Trump administration has lit many fires on every uh, every side of the aisle. Is it changing what you're doing now? And for the next, let's say, five years, what are you going to focus on? Yeah, it it is changing it. And I would say that when the election happened, um, it was probably a little bit like when the Titanic hit the iceberg and everybody was going, wait, did you just feel something? (laughs) (laughs) But I have to say that, um, and this is a lot of people are saying this now, too, that the energy, the solidarity um, the okay, we got to get up and start manning the lifeboats and and get get things going here. Unbelievable. There is a um, you know I, I hesitate to go so far as to call it a silver lining, but I think it is. I mean, what what happened is he revealed uh, what America, frankly, has been on certain levels since its mm-hmm. founding. Um, I could go off on the whole tangent <laughs> on that, but, but he is the distillation on some level of all of the things that need to be shifted in this country. Uh, and it is a consciousness shift, um, for us to be the country we think we are or could be. And, um, so he has energized people like never before. And we are, um, just trying to serve those needs without being in a panic mode, you know, and not just going, Oh my God, we got to put out all these fires, uh-huh. but let's step back and build the best, uh, fire engine <laughs> so that we can put out something much larger here since we have the opportunity to do it. But it has really, um, energized a lot of people. Oh, that sounds like a whole other subject for an entirely new podcast interview, but, uh, Peter Buffett, I really appreciate all the time and insight today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode of The Forbes Interview. I'm Steve Bertoni. If you'd like to reach us, email us at interview at podcastone.com. I'm John Horn. I'm the host of Geffen Playhouse Unscripted. I'm here with our very first guest, Rain Wilson. Hi, John. It looks like I'm the first guest on the Geffen Unclothed. Unscripted. Unscripted, yeah. Let's go with that. A marriage made in heaven, I guess. Or Westwood. Tune in for some of our exciting upcoming guests. David Copperfield, Neil LaBute, Neil Patrick Harris, Josh Gad, Rita Wilson, and many more. Be sure to download new episodes every Wednesday on the Podcast One app and on iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. And, and I'm Rain Wilson, the first guest. You were no, the very this, first guest. This was a huge uh, mistake. Stephen Playhouse Unscripted. Huge mistake. Hey, it's Adam Carolla, the greatest time of the year is back college basketball that's right march madness march mania and march money join in on everyone's favorite game the bracket challenge contest at betonline.ag sign up for a free account receive your 50 percent welcome bonus and make your picks all the early lines for all the games are now available so don't miss out on any of the action for the next three weeks at betonline.ag the exclusive partner at podcast one sports net at the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is 
tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.